Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the ability to come together, gather, and worship the living God. For us to turn our hearts to you, to forget everything that we've experienced this week, everything that would try to distract us and rob us of you, and to press into who you are in singing, Father, in just the simple act of being together as a body of believers who love you and love each other, and Father, in your word. And so my prayer right now, Father, for me and for my friends here with me is that you would come, even saying that, and trying to take in what that means, that the God who created every single molecule in the universe and who sustains them right now every millisecond by his own decision would come into this room and be with us and love us and be gracious to us by opening our hearts to see more of who you are. Father, we need that more than anything else right now. And so I pray that you would do that. You would grant an answer like that to this prayer and that you would be merciful and come in and dwell with your people. Press on our hearts, my heart, what you want us to learn from this passage. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you could grab your Bibles, open them up to Colossians 2, verse 6. Last week we began a series um, called, we're calling it, In Christ. And we're looking some, at some verses right in the middle, right at the, this pivotal part in the book of Colossians, where uh, Paul is presenting this profound reality that he refers to as being in Christ. Very simple, two words, in Christ. Paul is telling us how, really, how you take in everything that I've told you up to this point. 34 verses, roughly, of statements about who we are, who Jesus is, and this is how you live your life. This is how you respond to that. And so what I want to do is I want to take just one more Sunday to look at these two verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 7, and ask some questions. It's going to take us into the book of John briefly, but ask some questions about what it means, what Paul is telling us we need to do here. Given everything we've heard about Jesus and everything we know about ourselves being in Christ, what do we need to look at? So verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so the first question we asked last week was really simple. We asked, what does it mean to receive Christ Jesus? Because he's saying that's how we walk in Christ. What does it mean to receive him? And we discovered last week that receiving Jesus is faith. That's what faith is. Faith is receiving who he is, all that he is for us. And um, the life of a Christian therefore, is constantly dependent through faith on Jesus Christ. A Christian remains anchored in faith, or as Paul says here, established in the faith. But he also uses these words, 
which is very strange to connect to the word walk in, he uses the word rooted and he uses the word built up to describe our union with Christ. We must be rooted in him. We must be built up in him. And that's part of how we live our lives in Christ Jesus. Now, what does Paul mean here? Last week, I made a big deal about how in Christ for Paul was a massive part of his theology. You read anything from Paul, and whether implied or whether explicitly communicated, he's referring to our union with Christ Jesus. It's underneath everything that he says. But is this just Paul's thing? Lucy's trying to respond. She, 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 she agrees. Um, is this just Paul's thing, or is, is this something that we find other places in Scripture? That's the question that we need to ask. Is Paul just hung up on this idea, and this is what his deal is, or is this other places in the Bible? And the answer is yes. It is found in other places in the Bible. In fact, it's implicit throughout much of the New Testament. And what I want to do is I want to take some time today thinking about the word rooted and thinking about the words built up and look at something Jesus specifically says about being in Christ, about the Christian life. And I think this is, in my opinion at least, the most practical and the most vivid expression of what union with Christ, what being in Christ actually means. And so if you could go to John 15 verse 1, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together today. And this, I believe, will shine a light onto what it means to be rooted in Christ Jesus, what it means to be built up in him. <laughs> As you're going there, let me give you some context. This is the last night that Jesus will be alive on the earth before he's crucified. He and his closest disciples have left the upper room where they were sharing a Passover meal, and they are now on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden, you guys know this story, Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. And his friend Judas Iscariot will betray him in a way that will lead to his crucifixion and his death. And for the other 11 disciples, this is not how they thought the night was going to go. They did not expect it to turn out this way. Judas was their friend. They loved him. They shared food with him. They shared conversation, deep, intimate conversation with him. He was one of the 12. And now everything about him is about to come undone. And Jesus is leading them across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, says, he turns to them and he says these words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What Jesus is describing here is being in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what he's describing here. This analogy, this picture of a vine, is a reference to union with Christ. And it's not any vine. He says, I am not just the average vine. I am the true vine. Which means, if anything, 
that there are other vines out there, but I'm the only one that actually matters. Every other vine isn't true. It's false. And it will not lead to life. Something that's going to become more apparent as he exposits his analogy. Um, And though he's not explicitly said this, the disciples are part of the analogy already. They will, it'll become apparent as he goes on, but they are the branches in the vine, which is why Jesus can say about bearing fruit, if it doesn't bear fruit, my father takes it away. If it does bear fruit, he prunes it. Of every passage in scripture that describes our relationship to Christ Jesus as believers, this one, as far as I'm concerned, is the most important, most significant, and most critical It has been described as a keyhole into the universe of what our walk with Christ is in every facet. It's so simple in its description. It's a vine with branches, but it opens up the reality of what it means to be in Christ. Everything you know, need to know about the Christian life is somehow connected to this text. And if we were in the book of John I would spend literally weeks and weeks and weeks going through this because it's so much to mine out. And I would feel bad if we skipped over it. But we're not in John. We're in Colossians, so I get one shot. Um, And I'm going to cover the topsoil on this text. But I would commend it to you. It is very worthy of your reading, your study, and further contemplation. Um, And one day in John, we will go back to it. So um, (laughs) this text unpacks what it means to live your life in Christ. This union, Jesus says, the union with me is like a vine. And a vine has branches, which we can get just by reading Paul's description. Remember, Paul says, we are rooted in Christ Jesus. We are built up in Christ Jesus. Paul understands, even if he never heard this analogy, this is what it means to be in Christ. And like a vine and its branches, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. My father is the gardener. And this distinction about him being the true vine is very critical for us to understand. There are, evidently, like I said earlier, there are vines that are not true. And the vine dresser can look across the wall that he's looking on, or the fence, or whatever he's looking at this vine at, and he can see... The branches that are connected to the true vine, and he can see the ones that aren't connected in any life-giving way because the ones that are connected bear fruit, and the ones that aren't don't. And so we get this picture of Jesus being the true vine and his father going around him and the vine dresser looking at the true vine and seeing two kinds of branches. One's connected and one is not. He sees fruit on one and the other he doesn't. And what he does to the other is he takes them away. He completely removes the fruitless branches and then he prunes the fruitful branches. Now, why does he do this? Why prune the fruitful branches? Why do that? Gardeners in here already know why. Um, but for the rest of us, like me, <laughs> uh, here's why. To increase their fruit bearing, to make way for fruit, but to remove anything that would stop them from bearing fruit. And it's important to read what Jesus says immediately after this, because I think when we read these verses here, these two first verses, we can make a lot of mistakes by reading into them what our ideas of are bearing fruit. 
of bearing fruit. What we, our own presuppositions of what that means. What does Jesus say next? He says in verse 3 to his disciples, Already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, he's saying, Already, branches, you are clean. Why? Because I spoke words to you. My words cleaned you. And this word clean, it's a little tricky here, it's the same root word as prune. They mean effectively the same thing. Um, John is doing a play on words here. To clean a branch is to fit it for fruit bearing. It's to prune it. It's to cut away what's harmful and causing it not to bear more fruit. So what's made clear here is that Jesus Christ is the source of their pruning and cleaning from the very beginning. They didn't do anything here. They heard and received words coming from his mouth, and they were cleaned. And so what this says is that Jesus' word actually has the power to transform people from being in a state of unfruitfulness to being in a state of fruitfulness. Listen to John 6, 63. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is saying that his own words, when they come out of his mouth, are used by the Spirit to give life to people, the kind of life that is impossible for the flesh to create. It's impossible to receive this life by any means outside of him talking, him communicating. Even Peter, a few verses after this text, says that Jesus' words are the words of eternal life. So when Jesus speaks, people are pruned. They are cleaned, and they are given life. This is the, the effect that the words of Jesus Christ have on human beings. So we need to get this analogy right because <clears throat> we need to take our time here because Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine and I give life to all the branches that are in me. They're connected to me in a life-receiving way and they bear fruit because of their connection and they are cleaned from the very beginning to bear fruit by my words. My words are what make them fit. Now I want you to notice this. So far in the analogy, the branches have done nothing but receive. They have done nothing. There's nothing done by people here. Everything has come from the vine. Everything has come from the vine dresser. And that's the very nature of a branch. A branch doesn't do anything. It just grows in the life-giving receiving that it already has. It relies on its connection to the vine. But here is going to come an imperative, the first imperative, the first command that Jesus is going to issue he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. Jesus says, abide in me. Remain in me. Dwell in me. Live in me. This is where the analogy pushes beyond the image of a vine into our real lives. We have a command here. It presses deeper into 
what we need to do. And he's saying, you need to be anchored in me. You need to press deeper into me. You need to remain in me, stable and steadfast, like we talked about a few weeks back in Colossians 1.23. So here Jesus is giving the reason why some branches bear fruit and why others don't. Fruit-bearing branches abide in the vine. But branches not connected to the vine, not abiding in the vine, cannot bear fruit. It's, it's impossible for them to bear fruit. <laughs> and then he clarifies this. He says, so no one misses. So no one misses what he's saying. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is. That person is the one who bears much fruit. So abiding in Jesus involves Jesus dwelling, or us dwelling in him and Jesus dwelling in us, which David's going to talk about a little bit next week. So hopefully you'll, you'll be here. He'll talk about Jesus dwelling in us. Um, this is the only way someone can get fruit. It's the only way. If you abide in Christ Jesus, you will guaranteed bear much fruit. But without Christ, there's no hope for you bearing any fruit at all. And he gets more serious in the next verse. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's heavy. That feels severe. Why is Jesus talking this way to his disciples? These are his best friends. Well, the first reason he's saying this is because it's 100% true. He's telling them the truth. And I never personally want to ever diminish what Scripture clearly teaches about those who see the gospel and decline it. Those who refuse to abide in Christ Jesus Hell is real. It's a real thing, real reality. And it will be filled with real human beings who do not love God because in this life they despise the only hope that they've got, Christ Jesus. And the reason this sounds severe and heavy is because Jesus means for us to feel the heaviness of it. He wants us to, to know how heavy it is. He says the branches who do not abide in him, the true vine, are lopped off by the Father. They are cast into the fire and they are burned. This is not a game. Jesus is not making an empty-handed comment to his disciples. Judas, their best friend, has left the group in order to destroy it and kill its leader. And there are two errors I think you can make when you hear a text like this. One error is that you can diminish it and say, that's not what he really means. He means something else. It has no real substance on these disciples, for example. Um, there's no implications on them. He's, he's telling them it just for, to increase their knowledge. That's an error because Jesus is saying it for a reason. He wants it to yield results. And they're about to see why they need to pay attention to this because Judas is going to come in a few minutes and have the, the chief priest arrest Jesus and he'll be, set, he'll be on a cross in six hours. 
The other error that we can make with this is to think that anyone who is a sincere believer, who honestly does trust in Christ Jesus, can be cut off from him. To think that someone who is not abide or who is abiding in Christ can be severed from him. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that someone can truly believe, truly trust in Christ Jesus, and then for some reason not produce fruit and be marked for the fire. That is not what he's saying here. And that's not what the Gospel of John teaches. Listen to John 6, 37. This is Jesus again. All that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God for Jesus, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, every single human being who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will, I will raise them, him up on the last day. No one who comes to Christ will ever, ever be cast out. This word cast out in John 6 is the same phrase used in John 15 to talk about the branches being thrown away. The verse in John 15 is not teaching that someone who is actually in Christ can be taken away from Christ. In fact, if you read the book of John, you find that this is irreconcilable with the book of John. For example, John 10 says this. This is Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? He's about to tell us. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, I and my Father are one. Jesus is saying here that his sheep will never perish. Why? Well, because no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father is greater than anyone, anything. Now think about this. What this means that is if someone can snatch them out of the Father's hand, that would mean that the Father's grip, his hand, is not strong enough given Jesus' argument here, to hold them. And so what he's saying is if someone is in Christ and they perish eternally, that means that God's grip can fail. God's grip on them can fail. And I've heard, and I'll be honest, at one point in my life, this was the drum that I beat. This is what I would argue against someone who would say something like I'm saying right now to them. (laughs) That surely you can't be snatched out of God's hand but you could walk out of God's hand, right? You could walk out of his hand. Satan can't snatch you out of his hand, but you could decide to go out. This was the argument that I would make. But this argument isn't convincing to me anymore because any kind of snatching that Satan would do or anyone would do involves a person walking out of God's hand. Think about it. Satan doesn't force anybody. He doesn't come by and just grab you and say, let's go. Um, That's not the way he works. He lures and tempts people into sin and unbelief. 
they are snatched out of the hand of God if they were possibly by that, and they can't be. Therefore, the idea that someone can walk out of the indomitable and sovereign fingers of God is, is not conceivable and it's irreconcilable in this book. Um, God is stronger than anyone. This is the only argument that Jesus makes. He says, God is greater. Therefore, it's impossible. If you're in Christ, it is impossible. No one who's in me will ever perish. No one who abides in me will ever be cast out. However, there are branches that look like they're in the vine. They talk like they're in the vine. And to the human eye, it seems like they're in the vine. But to the vine dresser, they're not. Because he can see into their heart and he can see by their fruit. And when he removes them, when it's not there, he removes them and they are destroyed. But if a branch is abiding in the vine, it will certainly bear much fruit. And I haven't defined what fruit bearing is, so hang on with me. The vine dresser does something else when he sees fruit. He's looking at the vine, he sees fruit on this branch, he goes to it and he prunes it. He cuts away anything that would prevent more fruit from growing. And how that happens, how God the Father does this, is explained in verse 7. Listen to Jesus, John 15, verse 7. He says, If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus clearly does not think that you can overemphasize what it means to abide, the, the importance, the significance of what it means to abide in him. And so let's clarify, to abide in Christ Jesus means to trust in him, to rely on him, to remain in him. And part of this is that his words need to be in his disciples. His words need to dwell in their hearts and their minds. These are the same exact words that cleaned them and pruned them, made them fit for fruit bearing at the very beginning. And, and I just want to clarify at this point, just so that we're not off track, this doesn't mean just the red letters that are in this book. Everything in this book that God has told his people through Scripture is what he means. All of this book inside of us, us dwelling on us, us thinking about all that God has said to us <laughs> in Scripture. But then Jesus says something stunning, something, and he says this a lot, and you wonder what, like, this is pretty crazy for you and bold for you to say. He says, ask whatever you wish. Ask from my Father whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Whatever you wish. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, this is not my experience. I've prayed to God over and over and over for very important things, and he doesn't answer my prayer. He's never given to me what I've wanted, things that I feel like I need. But I want you to think about this text. This text isn't saying that we get whatever we desire, whatever our flesh desires, whatever we feel we need in the immediate moment. This 
text says that when the words of Christ dwell in you richly, you get what you wish for, what you desire for when that's true. And what exactly do you wish for? Think about it. When, when the words of Christ are dwelling in you richly, which is from Colossians 3, we'll get to that in a little bit, um, what are you really looking for? What are you desiring? What are you wishing for? That's the question we need to ask here. And what this passage is saying is that when you abide in the true vine, your affections, when you press into who Jesus is, your affections and your desires change. In fact, they change radically. What you want in this life changes. What you wish for in this life changes. You become intoxicated with Jesus. You become infatuated with him as your Savior, your Lord. Maybe not fully at first, and maybe for years, not fully. But over time, if you abide in him, if you press into him, you absolutely do. In fact, you begin to desire more than anything else in this world that your life would be dominated by Christ, by who he is, by his glory, by his beauty. This is why Paul in Colossians 2.7, back in our original passage, says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So Jesus isn't just Christ to us. He's not just Savior. Jesus is also Lord. He's master. He's master of what everything I desire falls underneath him. So when you wish for something from God, when you pray to God and ask for God what you wish, your prayer probably sounds a little bit like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And start today with this heart, this rebellious heart. That doesn't mean you never sin. That doesn't mean your affections aren't at war with (laughs) your flesh. That doesn't mean that your flesh doesn't get the upper hand sometimes. Sometimes it does. But it means this fundamentally. You have a new master. And your flesh slowly, bit by bit, is coming to grips with the reality that Jesus is your Lord. And your greatest joy above anything else in this world is to love him, to embrace him, and to serve him. So the prayer of someone in Christ is that God the Father, the vine dresser, would take away every single thing that would keep us from knowing him and loving him more. That he would take away anything that would keep us from bearing fruit to glorify and exalt his Father. Jesus says, ask this, and it will be done for you. And by this, he says, my Father is glorified. My Father is exalted and lifted up when you prove incontrovertibly to be followers of me, to be in the vine, to be true disciples. Now, here's the challenge. (laughs) People can read this passage, people often read this passage, and they short-circuit fruit-bearing into strictly rule-following. And I'm going to be honest with you, if you do that after hearing my message today, I have failed to communicate properly. I've failed you. If someone reads John 15 and they go out from here and they say, you know what I need to do? I need to make a checklist of good deeds to do so that I'm bearing fruit and, and God the Father looks at me, so bearing fruit, he doesn't go in the fire. That is not what's happening here. And if you, if you walk away with that, you're missing the point. You don't need a checklist. What you need more than anything else in the world is to abide in the vine. 
you need the words of Christ to press into who you are. Obedience is never something you do to earn God's love and his favor. It's never something to do you do to earn God's love and favor. Obedience, true Christian obedience, is the willful consequence of a heart that has encountered God's unmerited and unearned favor. Someone who's encountered God's love, a heart that delights supremely in pleasing God more than anything else in the world. Think about this. The Pharisees obeyed lots of rules. Lots of rules. Yet Jesus looks at them and he says, you're sons of Satan. They're rule followers. What's the deal, Jesus? Matthew 15, 8 tells us, this people, Jesus says, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And you can tell that for him to know that and see into their hearts and see just hollowness, it breaks his heart. If you make fruit into a list, you make Christianity into every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is a list. Do this and God loves you. Christianity is not those things. It is not at all those things. Jesus Christ is after your heart. He's after your heart. He wants worshipers. He wants people who love him for who he really is intrinsically. Begrudging obedience that comes from an obligation to keep a set of rules is nothing more, it's not Christianity, it's nothing more than moral deism. And it has no place, no place in the gospel and no place in Christianity. God is not glorified in us keeping a checklist. He's glorified in this. This is, how, this is what he's glorified in. That you're so conformed into the image of Christ that obedience to you is as natural as breathing. And when you don't do it, it hurts you. You hate your sin. You hate it. That's what God's after here. That's what Jesus is after here. A kind of obedience that is rooted in Christ Jesus and built up in Christ Jesus and flowing from the life that he gives us. And this kind of obedience is an act of God's love to us. It's not something we create. It's an act of God's work in us. Listen to verse 9 here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus says. Abide in my love. And then he says, how? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now let's get this section right. This is a difficult text. God the Father loves Jesus more than anything else in the world. This is the first thing we need to get here. He loves Jesus more than anything else in the universe. Jesus Christ is the Father's beloved Son. There are zero obstacles to him loving Jesus. But amazingly, Jesus says here, my love for my disciples, for you, risen hope, Jesus' love for you is identical to the Father's love for him. That's ridiculous. Because I have a lot of obstacles in the way of God loving me. A lot of obstacles. Jesus' love for you is not different from his Father's love for him. That is amazing. Because what it means is this. No one on this planet has ever loved you like this. No one. He loves you more than anyone else, period. 
And then Jesus says, including yourself, abide in my love, stay in my love, live in my love. And then he tells us how. This is how you stay in my love. Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments and you will dwell in, you will abide in my love. Now, don't read this wrong. Jesus is not saying that his love is contingent on your commandment keeping. He's not saying that here. Remember, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8. And although the Holy Spirit is certainly grieved by the sin of someone who is in Christ Jesus, because it's still there, God's love isn't rooted in our obedience. His love, this is what this text is telling us, guarantees our obedience. He's saying, my love for you is expressed in commandments. And I think when we hear the word commandment, we have a bad gut reaction. We're saying commandments are bad. No one likes commandments. But commandments are only bad in correspondence with whoever's giving the command. The one who commands is what determines whether or not the commands are bad. And every parent knows this, right? If you're a parent, you know this intrinsically. (laughs) Um, Most of our love for, for children, especially when they're younger, is expressed in commandments. We say, don't touch the stove when it's hot. Don't ride your bike without a helmet, unless you grew up in the 80s like me. Then no one told you that. Um, don't play with firecrackers. Don't play with knives. Why do parents tell their kids this way? Is it because they're trying to rob joy from them? No, it's not at all. They're trying to set them free to have real, lasting joy. Jesus is not interested in giving you five-minute thrills or 10-year thrills or 80-year thrills or 800-year thrills. He wants you to have infinite and inexhaustible joy that never ends. He's not trying to shortchange you by cutting out things that are going to ultimately harm you and other people around you. Listen to what he says in verse 11 here. Jesus says, these things that I've spoken to you from John 1 or John 15, 1 to 10, these things I've spoken to you that my, my own joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Every single thing that Jesus has said up to this point has had one purpose. His purpose is to pursue the fullest possible joy in his people. He's like, I am after your joy. And, and I don't want to give you a fickle joy that's going to fade away. I want to give you the joy that the infinite Son of God has had for all eternity. I want to give you my joy, a real indomitable joy that will never, ever fade away. This is the benefit of being in the true vine. This is the glory of being connected in a saving way to Jesus Christ, a joy that comes from the Father's love and a joy that comes through the Son's own giving to us of his life. But this joy isn't free. It's not a free joy. That joy for us, for it to be ours, required a payment by Jesus. In order for us to abide in Christ, in order for us to to abide in the love and the joy of Jesus Christ and be in the vine, it demanded this joy, the heaviest payment in the universe. The heaviest payment in the universe. Listen to verses 12 and 13. Jesus finishes his talk here, not finishes it, but he continues it by saying, this is my 
commandment. You want to hear what my commandment is to you? This is my commandment, that you love one another. That you love one another as I have loved you. Then he says something profound. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's saying there is no greater love, no greater love in existence than what I'm about to do for you. None. My love for you, he's saying as he goes to the cross, as he's thinking about what's about to happen, is without equal. There's no equal, no parallel to it. Nothing like it in the world. And we know this because him laying down his life is not a light thing. It's not a simple thing for him to do. It's, he's not just a man who's going to be forgotten one day. This is the son of the living God, the infinite glory of God personified. To lay down his life is to empty himself of every possible glory. And yet that is exactly what he did for us. That's staggering. I I would like you, as we close here, just to consider for a moment the implications of what this means. Um, And what really, what being in Christ means. What we see in John 15 is that Jesus has done every single thing necessary, every single thing necessary to bring us in him, into him, to clothe us with him. We are his branches. He is the true vine. He is the source of life. He is the source of our love in his commandments. And he's the source of our joy. Everything good that we've ever done, anything philanthropic that a believer has done, has come from him, ultimately. It's because of him. And think about this. When he decides to save us, when he decides, this is what I'm going to do to redeem my people, he doesn't just pay for our sins. He does that. He doesn't just ransom us from our feudal ways. He does that. It's not simply a barter, though. Think about the way that God designed this. He could have simply paid for our sins and just grabbed us and brought us to the Father and say, okay, here we go, the people. But that's not the way he saves us. He goes so much further. When you trust in Christ Jesus, when you put your faith in who he is, and what he accomplished on the cross, we are in a very real way placed in the Son of God. We are in Christ. And all of the benefits that are coming to him, all of his goodness, all of his joy, instantly becomes our joy. Instantly. And so when the world looks at us, We're so completely united to our Savior that they can't see where he ends and where we begin. We are in Christ. Jesus, Jesus, when he decided to rescue you, didn't just pay for your sins. He clothed you fully with himself so that he could protect you from everything, including losing joy. He gave you infinite joy here. You are in Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there are two responses we can have to this reality. And we're going to be talking about being in Christ (laughs) for a few more weeks. There are two responses you can have to to this reality. And everyone here, everyone who hears my voice, will respond in one of these two ways. Guaranteed. 
There's no middle ground to this. You may hear this. This is the first way you could respond. You may hear this, and whether you believe it or not, intellectually, whether you agree with the propositions or not, you will walk away from here and act like this is not a big deal. You will act like this is not a big deal. You may hear it, and in Christ may be a cool concept for Sunday. It may be something interesting. It may be something that you want to look at one day. But ultimately, it's not that important. And my hope and prayer is that you do not respond to it that way. The other response is very simple. You hear this reality of being in Christ for all that those who believe in him and being commanded by Christ to abide in him, to dwell in him, to live in him, and then you do everything every single thing you can in your power to abide in him. You cling to him in faith. You believe and trust in him. You explore the depths of who he is every single day in this book. You take his words, the very words of the creator of the universe, and you put them in your heart. You dwell on them. You think on them. And then you ask him for whatever you wish, whatever you long for. Namely, that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done, and that it would be done in us individually, personally, that it would start with me, that he would change everything about me until I look like him. That's how you abide in Christ Jesus. You press as deep as you can into the reality of Jesus Christ, into the beauty of who he is, into the glory of who he is as it's presented in scripture. And you say with Jacob from Genesis 32, I don't know if you remember this story, Jacob wrestles with God, and he grabs onto him, even though he's in excruciating pain. And he tells God, I will not let go of you until you bless me. I refuse. I will hold on to you until you bless me. And I can promise you with 100% certainty, you do that, he will bless you. And you will abide in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's so difficult to contemplate a concept as great and as powerful and as wild as being in Christ Jesus. There's nothing like it. And so for us to even talk about it today, we are walking and skirting the perimeter of eternity and looking at something that has infinite, infinite um, realities to be experienced and tasted and, and enjoyed, Father. And so my prayer today is that this isn't the sum of everything we know, but as we press deeper into what it means to be in Christ Jesus, this would only be the spark of every single person's desire here to pursue you with every molecule in our beings, to dwell in you, to taste of you, to open your book and look for you and not let go until we've seen you. And Father, I pray that that 
the realities of being in Christ, the realities of bearing fruit would become to us an easy yoke, not a checklist. We wouldn't look at it as just this rigid rule following, but we would see that our life and our joy is directly connected in, in, in your commandments and, and how they're there to protect us and keep us for yourself. And so, Father, I ask that as we worship today, Father, as we take communion, as we contemplate all that um, you are for us, on the cross and all that you were for us in us being able to dwell in you and abide in you, that you would move powerfully into our hearts, that you would lay hold of sin and different parts of us that have resisted you, Father, that you would convict, it, convict us of it, that we would confess it before you, Father, and that you would penetrate the deepest recesses of our soul and redeem us in the way that only you can. Father, we pray this knowing that with full confidence that you can do it. And you've told us in your word, we just read, ask whatever we wish. We wish to be with you and to know you and to love you. Grant this wish, Father God, by your sovereign power. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.